So if you have your Bible today, you can open up to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Um, we're continuing there in our study. And um, we're going to jump into what is given there in chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, this list of exhortations from the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Rome. How many of you uh, like exhortations? How many of you like encouragement, right? So rather than the don't do this, stop doing that, you want to be told, here's what you can do, right? And so there are some do nots in here, but most of this is an exhortation uh, to live as God has called us to live. And so I want to encourage you to take some notes and during this time, allow the Holy Spirit, maybe you would highlight something in your own life that the Lord would want you to step into in, in a greater way. There's a lot here in the end of chapter 12. We're not going to get through all of it today. But as we look at these exhortations, I want you to consider maybe a phrase or one exhortation that would stand out to you and take special notice of. Now, I want to remind you today that this is not a, a list from Paul on all the ways that we can be made righteous before God, okay? This is not some set of law, new set of laws. Remember, Paul wrote that the letter kills or the law kills, but the Spirit of God brings life, amen? And so really what we're looking at together today is a picture of what the Spirit-led life looks like. And as we see this picture, again, I want to encourage you to yield to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, if you remember, Paul stated uh, this portion of his letter. He started out in the beginning of chapter 12 by pleading with us to come before God and to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he told us how to do this. It's by allowing the Word of God to transform us. Again, the encouragement was don't be conformed to the pattern or the blueprint. Don't be conformed to the schematic of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that renewing we know takes place through the Word of God. And when our mind is renewed, then we can test and we can approve what God's will is. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about the operation of spiritual gifts within the church, right? And, and the encouragement there was find what your spiritual gift is and and get busy using it in the body of Christ. Get busy using it to build up the church. Now, in our text today, again, Paul's going to give us some marks of a true believer in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, as I was going through this, even first service, all these things that are characteristics of a Christian are characteristics of Jesus Christ. And so if we say we want to be more like Christ, here's some of the ways that we can do that. Romans chapter, nine, beginning, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Let's pray for the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the encouragement, the exhortation, Lord God, to be who you've called us to be as believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we read these words, we recognize these are not things that we can do in our own power and our own strength. And so, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit in this morning to highlight certain areas, but also to empower us, Lord God, to, to give us what we need to live as you've called us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there in the text, the first thing Paul says is let love be genuine. I, I trust you know this today, that the greatest uh, virtue of the Christian life is love. 
And the word used for love here is interesting because it's the word agape. That's important because agape love is a love that gives and expects nothing in return. When we hear that word agape, lots of people think, well, that only refers to God's love for us. Like, we could, we could never love like that, but Paul thinks otherwise. Of course, we know that before coming to Christ, Paul was a Pharisee, and he was, like, obsessed with the law. He was obsessed with keeping the law. But after his conversion to Christ, he saw the importance of one phrase in the law. Galatians 5.14, Paul writes this, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, when we realize and we understand how much we are loved by God, then there's this recognition that we need to love others with that same love, right? We love as we've been loved. We forgive as we've been forgiven. And really the power of agape love is that it is a love that sees beyond the surface. It sees to the true value of the one that's loved. And I would say it this way, that agape love in our lives, it values what God values. Three different times in the Gospel of John, Jesus commands his disciples to love one another. And this love for one another is not something that we can work up. It needs to be genuine. In other words, this love must have its source in God himself. But I I love the way that Paul says this because he says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. If you have your Bible in front of you, I encourage you to circle that word let, right? Let. It should speak to us. It should tell us that if we are believers, that the love of God is already in us. The love of God is already in us, and so we just need to allow that love to be expressed. The real challenge is not to work up some kind of love for others, but the real challenge is to refuse to allow the old nature to hinder the love that Christ already put in us. Now, the NIV, if you're reading NIV, says love must be sincere. The English word sincere comes from the Latin sincerus, which means without wax. And so he says, let your love be without wax. Well, what's that all about, right? Well, it comes from a practice of early Roman merchants who, when they were trying to sell a porcelain jar or, or a vase, if a crack would appear in the jar, what they would do is they would fill that crack with some wax that was the same color, right? They would try to hide the imperfection with the wax, but eventually the buyers caught on. And so here's what they would do. They would hold the jar up to the sun, and if that wax began to melt, it would reveal Uh, the crack in the jar. And so honest merchants would start selling their jars and they would start saying, well, this is sincerest. This jar is sincerest, meaning it is without wax. That is literally what the Greek says here. Let love be without wax. Let it be without hypocrisy, right? In other words, we need to allow the love of Christ that is in us to be genuinely expressed. So again, the first exhortation is let love be genuine. And then he goes on here, and I, I think he really begins to kind of unfold all the ways in which we let love be genuine. He says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. You know, one of the highest virtues in our society today is the virtue of tolerance. G.K. Chesterton once said, tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. Because tolerance basically says we should never make any judgments about what is right and what is wrong. We should just tolerate. We should put up with so many different views, and we can never specifically say that's right or that's wrong. However, we know that the Word of God tells us clearly, amen, that certain things are evil and certain things are good. And so the highest value of Christianity is love, not tolerance. 
It's love, not tolerance. And here's why you need to make that, that, that specification, right? Because it's not loving to tolerate or to allow what we know to be destructive in someone's life. As a parent, you know it would not be a loving thing to tolerate drug use in your home, right? That's not a loving thing. We know that's going to lead to destruction. And so I want to encourage you today, don't allow yourself to get used to evil in your own life. And don't allow yourself to get used to evil in our culture. Regardless of what uh, others would call good, we have the word of God and this becomes our definition, right? This becomes our foundation. Regardless of what our state government in New York would say, we know, no, life in the womb is sacred. Abortion is not health care. Just think about the insanity. I was thinking about this the other day. Of a state that pushes reusable bags but believes life in the womb is disposable. We should not tolerate this culture of death. We should stand boldly against it. We should hate what is evil. You you see, it's because the church has bought into this virtue of tolerance, and we think, well, that's the highest virtue, that we're seeing all this moral decay around us, and we're staying quiet. But Paul says, no, no, you need to hate what is evil. I love the word abhor, because it's even stronger, right? You need to abhor what is evil. Now, in the Greek, there's two words for evil. There's poneros, which is the word here. It is this ethical sense. It's anything that's wicked or that's bad. And so when we talk about hating evil, this is not hatred of a, of a person or a people, but rather it's a hatred of everything that stands in opposition to what is good. We are to hate, we are to tear down any idea that would distort what is good. When it comes to, the only way I can say it is the sexual anarchy that we're seeing in our day, there are some that would say, well, pastor, why do you even care? Like, just let people do what they want to do and be who they want to be and love who they want to love. But we need to oppose any ideology that we know is evil. Anything that stands in opposition to God's plan that we know is good, that we know leads towards flourishing. If you think seriously about the transgender ideology that's being promoted now, right? It's this message that you could be born with the right mind but the wrong body. Right? That's, that's the heart of the message. You could be born with, with the right mind but the wrong body, and so the solution put forward is mutilate the body to make it conform to the mind. But think about the message of the gospel. It is the exact opposite. It says you were born with the right body. The problem is not with the body. The problem is with the mind. And so we need to be transformed. We need to be changed by the renewing of the mind. But we as a church need to not be afraid to say that mutilation of the body is evil. Come on, especially when we talk about minors. I think regardless of age, it is evil to convince someone to mutilate their body to conform to an image that they hold in their mind. No, the loving thing to do is to walk with someone and begin to help them think clearly about who they are and about who God made them to be, to think clearly about how they are beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And if we can do that, hear me, Then we present the truth of God, and we watch as their mind is healed. We watch as their life is transformed. That is the loving response to what's happening in the world around us. You know, recently, a a talk show host who I I was listening to regularly, he's a devout Catholic, he said this in regards to transgenderism. He said, we need to eradicate transgenderism in our society. And of course, he was attacked. He was misquoted as saying, we need to eradicate transgenders from our society. But that is not what he said. What he was saying was we need to eradicate this ideology because it stands in opposition to what we know to be true, that God created male and female. 
that he created with a specific design and a specific intention, that he is the one who made us, and he made us with a purpose, and he has a plan for our lives, and he knows what is good, even when we don't know what's good for ourselves. And so again, the statement was, we need to eradicate this ideology. Listen, we as the people of God will love the world best when we hate ideas and expressions that attempt to distort what is good. So abhor what is evil, but then he also says this, hold fast to what is good. Now, how do we do that? There's a couple practical ways. Write these down. A couple practical ways that we can hold fast to what is good. Well, we do that by staying in the word of God. We do that by being in in a place of prayer. We we do that by not forsaking the assembly of the believers on a Sunday morning, right? Another translation says cling to what is good. In other words, hold tightly to it. Listen, it is going to take greater and greater effort on our part as the people of God to not be swept along with the tide of a culture that is becoming increasingly more evil. Again, that's why we need to make a habit of holding tightly to what is good. We need to keep a a practice of godly habits. Now, don't give up. Here's what I want to encourage you, church. Don't give up. Don't back off from doing what is good even when it is not popular. I believe now is the time that the church needs to hang on and the church needs to persevere, amen? Verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. The word for love in verse 9 was agape. The word for love here is phileo or Philadelphia, and it is speaking of a brotherly love. It is a reminder to us that in the body of Christ, we are a family. And so families do life together. That's why we encourage you to get involved in a community group, okay? We realize that as the church got bigger, we need to get smaller, and so we need to do life together in smaller groups. Our community groups are places where we take what's shared on a Sunday morning, we break it down, and we say, how do we make that practical, right? How do we live this out, all right? But I also want to say this. That's a formal way we do it, but you can also do that informally. In a sense, you meet someone on a Sunday morning and you get to know each other, invite them out for something to eat. Have people in your home. Listen, you can't know the needs of your brothers and sisters unless you do life together, amen? But you share a meal with someone, you, you, you spend time with them, then all of a sudden you can be concerned for the things in their life. And then he says this, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, for the competitive types in the room, here's a good challenge. When someone honors you, you honor them more right? This could be translated value one another preferentially. Of course, we know that when we come to Christ, we're adopted into the family of God, and so we are are sons and daughters of God. According to Isaiah 43, each one of us is at that point precious in the eyes of God. And I just wonder in our communication with one another, do we see each other that way? Can you imagine for just a moment what it would be like at Grace Point if every time we got together, we were trying to outdo one another in showing honor, right? That would be the brotherly affection that's talked about here, interacting with one another. We need to listen fully to each other. We need to to care deeply. We need to acknowledge the expression of Jesus that's in the life of every believer, In Philippians, Paul encourages us to think of others as more significant than ourselves. And he says this, there, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. I love that. First of all, he says, let's not allow our zeal for God or our eagerness for the things of God to turn into laziness. I I think we've all been there before. We're really excited about something. We're 100% in, we're we're gung-ho, right? It's January 1st, you're at the gym and... You're not there anymore, are you, right? 
Over time, we, we slack off and, and we back off and, and we slow down. And, and so especially when it comes to spiritual things, we should never take a break from our intensity of faith, our, our spiritual life. The Jets didn't get a whole lot of things right this year, my Jets, but I love the expression, all gas, no break. <laughs> That's our spiritual life, right? 100% going forward. You see, through the years, I've had people at times just go missing from church, and I'll run into them, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, he's got a lot of things going on, and so we're kind of taking a break from church right now. I've got a lot of things going on, so we're just kind of taking a break. Can I just say that never ends well? Don't allow your zeal to turn into laziness. We, we ought to be men and women of passion. I, I tell you, nothing will attract people to the good in your life more than a passion for the things of God. And so he says, be fervent in spirit. In other words, get on fire in the Holy Spirit. The, the word fervent there in the Greek is the word zeo. It means to be a boiling liquid or a, a red hot metal. Listen, when we understand that we have the Lord of all creation living inside of us, right? There should be a passion in our lives. I would even say it would be sinful to not be passionate about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Like when we realize that we are seated with Christ in heavenly realms, do we realize what that means? That we're seated in a place of power, we're seated in a place of authority, we are chosen by God, and our destiny is more glorious than we could ever imagine. Oh, that we would never lack passion in our lives for the things of God. At the same time, I think if we're honest in the room, there are those times when kind of our passion just dwindles and we're not quite so passionate. There are times in our lives, I don't know if you've been there, where everything seems like a spiritual battle, right? It feels like you're trying to drag something through the mud because the reality is we will have times of difficulty. We will have have troubles, if you will, and that's okay. I just want to encourage you, don't stay there. When you find yourself in that place, keep pressing into the Lord. Don't be apathetic about your faith. That would be the opposite of what this verse is telling us to do. In those times when you seem to be lacking passion for the things of God, let the word of God speak to your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to renew your mind. And then Paul says there in verse 12, he says, rejoice in hope. Now what is our hope as believers? What is it that we're called to rejoice in? Well, I gave you some room to write some things down there. But I can tell you a few things. Well, Paul already told us earlier in our letter that our hope is in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Our hope is that when our transformation is complete, that we will be made into the likeness of Jesus Christ, that we're going to live in his presence forever. And that hope, if we cling to it, can see us through the most difficult of times. If we keep our eyes on where we're headed, if we're reminded of our glorious future, that's our hope. That's what we rejoice in. And so he says this, rejoice in hope, but also be patient in tribulation. Now, when you hear that word patience, I, I think sometimes we think of that word as a very pa- a passive word, right? I'm just, I'm being patient. I'm just kind of waiting around, right? But patience here does not speak of just this passive, I'm kind of putting up with things, but I would say patience is a very active, steadfast endurance. Patience requires steadfast endurance. There is a steadfast endurance that is required in the midst of tribulation. Now, what is tribulation? Tribulation is not a minor thing, okay? You stub your toe, that's not tribulation, okay? it it refers to something deep. It it refers to something that is troubling. But according to James chapter 2, we know that all tribulation that God allows in our lives is ultimately for our good. 
And so when we're walking through a trial, we, we can't use that as an excuse and say, well, I'm going through something right now, and so I can't really love my brother or sister. I can't really be involved. I'm going through it, right? I'm just going to kind of back off and take a break. No, instead, I would encourage you, be steadfast. In the midst of tribulation, be steadfast, be consistent. And then Paul says this, he says, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, pray without ceasing, right? In other words, continue to pray. In other words, we, we should always be in constant communion with God. This really refers more than anything to the attitude of our heart. To be constant means to be continually attentive to something, to wait continually on something. And so as we are constant in prayer, we are attentive to the Lord for his direction and for his instruction for our lives. Verse 13, contribute. Contribute or give to the needs of the saints. When we talk about that brotherly love or that familial love that we are called to have as the people of God, I got to say, that's not in word only, okay? We ought to do what we can to assist others when they have needs in their lives. That's why we started the Benevolence Fund many years ago here at the church. We said, let's set aside some practical resources to meet needs in the body when they come on. And, and there's times when people go through struggles, they go through you know, financial needs, maybe no fault of their own. Maybe it's just the circumstances, but because of that, we are able as the body to respond. And then he says this, and, and seek, find a way to, to show hospitality. It's amazing because the Greek word for hospitality is, is literally translated love for strangers, okay? And the King James Version says we should be given to that. We should be given to a, a love for strangers, right? Listen, it's easy to love the people that you know. Well, sometimes it's not, but it's easy to, to love those who are familiar, right? But, but we're called also to love the stranger. And, and the Greek word there is dioko. And it's an interesting word because it really means this. It means to pursue or harass or persecute. It's this idea of pursuing people that you do not know with hospitality persecute them with hospitality, right? Hunt them down, right? Pursue people you don't know with this love for them as strangers. This is the idea of love in action, not just feelings of love. Verse 14, here's where it starts to get really tough. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It's interesting because Paul's been talking about how we relate one another in the church, but here in verse 14, I think he's talking about how we relate to those outside of the, the body or the family of Christ. Now, there, there may be those within the church who you feel like persecute you, okay? But generally, we know this persecution comes from the outside. Again, Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Wish them good and not evil. Jesus said this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But let's be honest, that's hard to do, right? Can we just be honest? That's hard to do. It's hard because our old nature doesn't want to honor someone if they don't honor us. Our old nature wants to honor ourselves. Our old nature doesn't want to forgive when we're wronged. Our old nature wants to, I don't get mad, I get, right? That's the old nature. And so when someone offends you, when someone insults you, the natural action is to begin to respond in, in, in like manner. How many times has, has someone wronged you? And you've just replayed that thing over and over in your mind. Anybody been there? And you're just thinking about it, man, I should have said this. I wish I responded that way. You got the perfect comeback now, right? right? But you're playing that over and over and over in your mind. I want to encourage you, don't do that. 
because you hurt yourself even more when you do that. And generally, that person, they've moved on. They're, they're living their life, and you're just replaying what they did over and over again in your mind. Hebrews 12, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews encourages us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Don't allow that root of bitterness to spring up in your life. Listen, when we respond to wrongdoing with more wrongdoing, it just adds fuel to the fire. But when we can choose to love that person instead, often what we'll find out is that that love is what wins that person over. As believers, it should not surprise us when sinners sin, okay? It should not surprise us when the world that doesn't hold the truth of God's word does things that offend us. In fact, I think we should expect to be offended, but when we are offended by something done to us, we can choose to model a different way of responding, right? We can refuse to let that offense grow in our lives, and instead we can choose to love. Same lesson in 1 Peter 3.14. He writes, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. I love that. Bless. That's what you're called to do. Bless that you may obtain a blessing. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying if you suffer for being righteous, if you are wronged by someone else and you respond by blessing them, God's going to bless you. Now hear me. This does not mean that you need to live like a doormat and keep giving someone an opportunity to wrong you or hurt you or abuse you, but you can be gracious and you can be loving in your response to those who persecute you. Because here's the reality. When, when somebody loses it on you, you ever been out there and somebody like full-on road rages on you? You have no idea what's going on behind the scenes in that person's life. And so if, if you can look at what, what's going on and, 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 and instead of responding in like matter, you can begin to pray and say, God, I don't know what's happening in that individual's life right now. But Lord, I just pray you'd be with them. Lord, I, I pray you'd give opportunity for a believer to speak into life. All of a sudden, things begin to change. And, and so instead of responding in a like manner, take it to prayer. Ask the Lord to work on their heart. Ask the Lord to bring conviction. I know you want vengeance, but we're going to get to it next week. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, okay? That's next week's, okay? But ask the Lord to work on their heart. Ask the Lord to convict them of wrongdoing so that they'll feel guilty. No, no. So that they'll turn, right? So that, that they'll change, right? Not so they'll suffer guilt, but that they'll be healed, that they'll be made whole. Finally, verse 15 writes, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Can I just say that's exactly what God does for us? And that's what we're called to do for others. We are called to be present with one another in our rejoicing but we're also called to be present with one another in our pain. You know rejoicing's easy, right? Re rejoicing with others is easy. Everyone wants to be there at the celebration. Everybody wants to be there at the party. Everybody wants to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But we as the people of God are called to be those who would weep with those who weep. We're called to be those who would stand by others in that place of mourning and in that place of pain. We're called to be those who would walk with others through seasons of pain and loss. You know, really, the struggle, as you look at all of these exhortations in this list by Paul, the struggle is just this. It's self-centeredness, right? If we're honest, we're just so focused on ourselves all of the time, but one of the best cures for self-centeredness is when we hear other people and we begin to feel the pain that they're walking through and we have compassion 
That word compassion, it really means with feeling. Jesus modeled compassion at the tomb of Lazarus. We're, we're told that when Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb, right, he wept. Now, you can read that text and say, well, why would Jesus weep? He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would, would he cry with those that were there at the tomb? It's because he had compassion on them. It's because he felt their pain. He had compassion because he knew that their hearts were breaking. Now, it's amazing because the very first miracle that's recorded in Scripture for us is the changing of the water to the wine at the wedding feast in Cana. And I'm sure that when Jesus turned the water to wine, that he shared in the joy of that family, that he shared in the, the joy of that, that wedding party. And here's what I know to, to be true, that in every single life there will be joy and there will be sorrow. Like, it's a given. Joy and sorrow are part of every single life. And so if we're going to share life with one another, then we need to share in the joy and we need to share in the pain. Now, this is quite a list that we've seen so far, and we're going to finish it off next week. But I want you to understand today that these are marks or these are characteristics that should be present in our lives as believers. Again, this is not a checklist to say, man, if I do all these things, it's going to make me righteous. It's going to make me holy before God. No, we've already seen through the book of Romans that it is faith in Christ that makes us righteous, right? It is faith in the finished work of the cross that makes us righteous. But when we come to that place and we respond by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice and we allow our minds to be transformed by the word of God, then all of a sudden things begin to change in our lives and we begin to hate what is evil. We begin to say, man, I want to cling to what is good. We, we love each other with a brotherly affection. We try to outdo one another in showing honor, right? We're, we're, not, lawful, we're not slothful. We're not lazy in our zeal, but, but we are burning brightly as we serve the Lord. We rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In the midst of tribulation, we can be patient, and we can be constant always in prayer. We see the needs of those around us, and when people persecute us, we don't persecute them back. We don't curse them back, though instead we bless them. We are people who rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Again, these are just some of the marks that Paul says should be present in the life of a spirit-filled believer. These are things that will be present, again, when you present your bodies to Christ as a living sacrifice. And so what I encourage you to do is take this list, and in your times with the Lord this week, just pull out this list, and Pray and ask the Holy Spirit. Maybe he's highlighting one right now. And I'm not going to call it a weakness. I'm going to call it a growth area. It's an area in your life where God can strengthen you and God can encourage you. Remember, none of these things earn you salvation. They are all a fruit of the salvation that you have already received. So why don't you stand with me as we prepare to close today. I feel led to do this before we close with a song, before the worship team leads us. I want you to take a moment in prayer. And just allow the Holy Spirit to highlight something. Maybe one of these, again, jumped out to you right away. And the Holy Spirit's convicting you over that area. Listen, conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. It allows us to turn, right? It allows us to be more of who God's called us to be. And so just take a moment and pray. Allow the Holy Spirit to highlight maybe one area. But then also ask, Holy Spirit, would you empower me to live like this? I want to be, Lord, all you've called me to be. Let's take a moment just pray through that before we close with the song.